Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 is where we find ourselves this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. We are continuing our study this morning. Um, is it interesting? Okay. We'll, this morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through 22. Reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. You can, you can grab one for yourself. But keep it open. We'll be looking a lot through verse, uh, chapter 9, a couple other verses as well. But um, as we launch into, before we read the Scripture, let me just remind everyone uh, that this, this letter, this epistle is written to mainly a Jewish audience. Their hearts are being tugged. You've had your hearts tugged into the direction of going back to some form of Judaism. They've made Christian professions, this Jewish congregation. Some are genuine, some are not. We looked at that before. But because of persecution, they're toying with the idea of returning back to old patterns of thinking, old patterns of behaviors, and how they relate to God, to find their hope, to find their strength, to find their salvation in the midst of this persecution. And, and the author up to now, we've seen many times, uh, he's, he's bringing many arguments and bringing to mind um, many theological arguments that he could, could think up uh, and, and throw at them and throw at us to show us the truth of the supremacy and sufficiency and superiority of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. We mentioned that last week. And how the new covenant now has been fulfilled, the old covenant now has been fulfilled and supersedes the old covenant. Remember, a covenant is an oath-bound oath. It's an oath-bound relationship, I should say, between two or more parties. And God, in his grace and in his sovereignty, he sets the limits and standards of, of his covenants. By grace alone, he sovereignly chose to establish relationship with his creation by means of a covenant. So it's very important you understand that. And, and the recipients of this epistle are being tempted to think that Jesus is not solely supreme or superior in his finished work, in that relationship that God has established with his people. And they're, they're tempted to start going back to doing things themselves apart from the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, in hopes to get into this relationship, into this fellowship with God. That's what covenants are about. And the author uh, of, of Hebrews has uh, shown us that Jesus is better and greater than other things that they used to rely on. We talked about that, like angels and Moses, Joshua and the promised land. But now for quite some time, he's been showing this congregation and you and I how Jesus is our superior and better high priest. And because he is a superior and better high priest, he now mediates and inaugurates a better and new covenant. And the question is, we looked at last week and again this week, in what sense is the new covenant a better covenant than the old covenant? And in chapter 8, we are told that Christ's covenant is superior because, one, it's the real and the final finished work. It was everything that the Old Testament was a foreshadow to appointed to. Jesus is that fulfillment. He also says in chapter 8 that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant because it's an internal work. The law in the Old Testament were written on stones, but the law in the New Testament is written on, on the New Covenant is written on the heart, chapter 8, verse 10. And last week in chapter 9, the author began to explain and contrast the practices, remember from last week, the practices and, and really the methods and, and the, the work of the Old Covenant worship practices, the things that they worshiped in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the temple area. We talked about that. We're going to look at it quickly today. But he, would, he explained in contrast the practice of the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, and the New Covenant worship. We looked last week at the place 
on earth that God had designed for the people to meet together, the place of the old covenant worship, the priests who would mediate the old covenant worship, the problem or the limitations of the old covenant worship. And then we ended last week in verse 11 and 12 briefly looking at the provision of the new covenant worship. And that's kind of where we pick up uh, this morning uh, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. So here, the inspired, authoritative, infallible word of God. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. Hear God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when they commandment for every for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people he took the he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship verse 22 indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins I don't know what's going on with this this powerpoint slide Uh, put on the um, the the verses on there I wonder if it's advancing by itself oh okay (laughs) that answers the question If you could advance it back, I'd appreciate it. (laughs) Four headings. Turn to the four headings, please. So we'll look again at the place, a different place, and the power of the blood. And you can see the title of the sermon is, is The Blood of Christ. The place and the power of the blood, the mediation and inauguration of the blood, the principle and the provision of the blood. Okay, so turn with me again to our scripture reading, chapter 9, verse 11, and we'll look at the place of the blood. Now, in Exodus, if you remember, Moses was told by God exactly how to build the tabernacle, the tent. And last week, our author took us into this tabernacle, this tent, where the Israelites would meet and gather together to worship God in the Old Testament. Uh, and we looked at each part of the tent. And I, and I want to look at it quickly one more time because the tent, this tabernacle area of worship in the Old Covenant teaches us something about who God is and what, what is the expectation, God's expectations. Just quickly, okay? This is the tabernacle area. Uh, if you notice, the first thing you notice is that the walls here were white and representing holiness. Second thing you'll notice is that there's barriers. Barriers to get in, barriers here, and barriers here teaching us about 
entering into God's presence. Then as you enter into the, the, the uh, tabernacle area, you'll see a, a, a brazen uh, altar where the sacrifices were committed. The animals were sacrificed. Then you have this bronze laver where the washings would take place. There's some tables there for the sacrifices as well for the, for the animals. And if you were a Jew, you were allowed into here, and that's as far as you went. Yet the priest could go into that area and do all the sacrifices. They were your mediator when you would bring your sacrifices into the Old Testament ways, okay? Now, here again, so, so let me just show you. This area is this right here, okay? So again, there, there's barriers getting into the next, to the next area. Sacrifice was done out here. Israelites were allowed in, but not far. But the, the priests, the mediators, again, were allowed in through this barrier into this area right here called the holy place. Very important. Holy place had a lampstand. It had the showbread, the bread of presence, and had the altar of incense. Priests, only priests, were allowed into that place. Okay? And as you went deeper into it, this is the Holy of Holies, a curtain again. There's a curtain here, a curtain in the beginning of the temp- tabernacle, curtain here into the holy place, another curtain into the what's called the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a very heavy, thick veil. Um, and inside, which we looked at last week, was the Ark of the Covenant. You can see it there. Here's a better picture of it. Okay, And inside the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, is the golden urn that had the uh, um, manna in it, Aaron's staff, the first high priest, his, his staff that had budded. And then inside you had, very important, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And sitting on top of the ark was these golden cherubims that represented the glory of God. So what you have is, here's the golden cherubim, cherubim and the glory of God, represented the glory of God. Inside the ark was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that every single Israelite and everyone in this room has broken, probably a lot of them just today, okay? (laughs) And on top, very important, is called the mercy seat. It's the cover, the golden cover, or the place of propitiation, the the place of atonement, okay? And on that mercy seat, is where the sacrifices took place and God's wrath, his anger towards sin was appeased, averted, where justice was satisfied. God's demand for justice was satisfied here on the mercy seat. Between his glory and his holiness and the broken laws was blood that was interposed. Now, one day a year, on the day of atonement, the high priest alone would enter into that most holy place once a year, that is it. Okay, that was all. And if you look in your text, it says in chapter 9, verse 7, and that's what the author is talking about now, as it gets into chapter 9, he talks about the first places, verses 1 through 6, not a second place, verse 7, but into the second place, the most holy place, only the high priest goes once a year, and not without taking blood with him, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, the people of God, the Israelites, were not fully in God's presence. They couldn't draw near to God with real confidence. Not yet. 
Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not the veil, made in hands, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, the bad translation, into the most holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay? So what you need to understand is that God, in his grace, made a way for the Israelites to approach him, to have a relationship with him, not, not in a full and intimate sense, as it's going to be, but our holy God in the old covenant has invited sinners to come to his presence, and that's what the book of Leviticus, maybe we'll preach that one day, uh, Leviticus is all about is how a God who is holy, can have relationship with his creation that are sinners. That's why you have in the book of Leviticus, you have these rituals, these sacrifices to follow, these festivals to observe. You have priests who represent or mediators for the people. You have a holy God and a sinful people, and God has given us mediators, the priests. There are purity laws that have to do with washing. When you become unclean by touching a dead body or something else, God was teaching them that when you're unclean, you can't come into the presence of a holy God. You need to be cleansed. So there was sacrifices, there was priests, there were rituals. And right smack in the middle of the law, Leviticus 16, there's what's very important, and that's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is when the nation of Israel would gather together at the temple and all the heads of the family, the men were mandatory, it was mandated for them to be there. On the day of atonement, the nation would get together and atone for their sins, their unintentional, inintentional sins, sins that they haven't atoned for all year, they would do on the day of atonement. And the high priest, the chief priest, the grand boomba chief priest, offered a burnt offering and then bathed himself Instead of putting on his ritual priestly robes, he would put on his high priestly robes, white linen, white undergarments, white sash, white turban, all to show that he was cleansed from defilement, that he was clean. The high priest then would put his hands on the head of a bull, selected as a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family. He's the head of the family. And he would sacrifice. See, he had to sacrifice for his own sins before he can sacrifice for the sins of God's people because he was a sinner. That day, the high priest then would take two goats and lay his hands on them and choose one by lot to be sacrificed and another goat to be uh, what they call a azazel. Azazel is the word. It's a scapegoat. Two goats. One would have a crimson wool on the horns. This is the scapegoat. The other one would have a a thread bound around them to show this one is going to be slaughtered. This one is going to be the scapegoat. The high priest then, and the whole nation was watching this, takes the bull from where they could, right? They knew what was going on. It couldn't get in close. He would take the bull, sacrifice it on the altar. Remember we looked at that, the bronze altar outside on the outer court. He would take the blood. He would go into the holy place well, no, actually, you know what he did? He would sacrifice the animal, and then he would take coals 
from the, this brazen altar where the sacrificed animal was. He'd take coals from there. He would go into the holy place, grab some incense, and then enter into the most holy place where the ark was. He'd put the coals, the hot coals on the, 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 the uh, mercy seat, pour incense on it from the altar of incense. Smoke would come up, rise up, cover the mercy seat, and then he would take the bull's blood and pour it on the mercy seat. Okay, you following me? He would do the same thing for the goat that was designated. So that was for his own sins, and then he would do the same thing. He would take the goat, he would go out to the brazen altar, sacrifice the animal, take the blood, take some coals with him, walk into the holy place beyond the curtain, grab some incense, go into the most holy place once a year, and he would put the coals, the the incense on the cover, and spread the blood over the mercy seat, okay? And as the blood was being poured out on the mercy seat, it was the place of propitiation, the place of atonement. God would look down again on the broken laws of Israel and the blood interposed between a righteous God who must judge sin and the blood of an animal that was, that was temporarily satisfying God's justice. He is holy, he is just. And his wrath would be appeased and adverted. And at that moment, you need to understand, is at that moment when sin was covered, when sin was propitiated, when, 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 uh, when sin was covered in that time, God came down on the mercy seat. His Shekinah glory, his panim, his face, and his dwelling would come among his people through the blood sacrifice. Then, when that was all done, there was still a goat left. There was a scapegoat. It was more joyous time for the Israelites. They would come out and, and he would take that goat that was going to be the scapegoat and he would lay his hands on him and he would confess the sins of the nation. He would say something like this. All the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins are, symbolic, are now transferred, right, to this goat's head and then he would send it out into the desert, send it away, the poor goat never to be seen again and symbolically being sent away, because that's what forgiveness means, to be sent away. It was a joyous time. If God didn't strike them all dead, God received the atonement, the day of atonement, and then there would be celebration. The sins of the nation was dealt with. God could now graciously meet with his people. He would postpone judgment until the following year. That is the day of atonement. Do you see how gracious and wonderful this day was for the Israelites. Knowing they were sinners, knowing, like we know we are sinners, we know we're not perfect. Knowing that we have violated and sinned against God, yet God graciously, lovingly made a way for them to atone for their sins and to be back into a right relationship with God. But do you see also how gracious and wonderful the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is? But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he went through a more perfect tent. He entered into the holy of holies before God in glory. Not like there's a literal tent in heaven, but he means in the most holy place, into the most intimate place with the Father. Not by goats, the blood of goats or the blood of calves, but by his own blood. He secured redemption. You see, Jesus is the day of atonement fulfilled. He alone enters into the most holy place 
where God dwells, where his sacrifice and his blood was shed not only to secure our redemption, but very important, so that sinners, people who know that they're sinners, who recognize their sin, can now have relationship, intimacy with God. Yes, sinners in relationship with the holy God. Now, this is not to say that the Old Testament sacrifices were wrong or, 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 or foolish, but they weren't effective. They were ineffective. They were not completed or, or complete or fulfilled until Christ came. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What he's saying is there was a sacrifice where they would take the ashes of a heifer and someone would be made clean. He said the blood would do that temporarily, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, first thing I want you to know about this text is that the word who, or the words who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God is very important. It speaks of Jesus' eternality as the eternal Son of God. It speaks of him being empowered, I believe, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, commentators are, are, are uh, some people believe it has to do with the eternality of Christ. Some people have to do with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I think it could be both because they're both true. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit both in his life and in his death. And not only because he is eternal that his sacrifice and his blood can purify us, but because he is, look what it says, without spot, without blemish, without sin. Christ's all-surpassing perfect life and his sacrifice cleanses us from our sins. You know, even in the Old Testament, an animal that was chosen had to be physically unblemished. Why? Because it pointed to the unblemished, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. His name is Jesus. They were all foreshadows pointing to Christ. You see, sinners can't die for someone else's sin. They got their own sin to deal with. But Jesus is perfect. He is without sin. He is free from inward blemish. Christ's sacrifice did more than just cleanse the person ceremonially as ashes did. Look what it does. It cleanses us internally. We talked about this last week in chapter 9, verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says the old covenant sacrifice in worship, the gifts and sacrifices are offered, cannot perfect the conscience. Remember we talked about that. It, those old sacrifices really did not reach in the heart and perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice makes us clean. It's a better blood. It, it, is, a, it is a better cleansing. It actually works to, to cleanse us internally. See, that's what he's saying. There's a man by the name of Albert Speer. Maybe you heard of him. Um, he was interviewed on U.S. Uh, excuse me, ABC's Good Morning America. Uh, he was a Hitler confidant back in the day. Uh, he was credited for keeping the uh, factories uh, of the Nazis uh, up and running. Um, he was a technological guy. Uh, he was actually the only one of 24 war criminals uh, in Nuremberg who actually admitted his guilt, who actually confessed what he did was wrong, and uh, and and, bro- and really sinful and evil. Uh, he spent 20 years in prison. So he writes a book, 
and his interviewer, interviewer interviews him from ABC Good Morning America, and the interviewer says this, you have said in the book, the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel this way? And he says to her, I, I served the sentence of 25 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. So he gets out of prison. But I can't do that. I'm still carrying the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. I can't get rid of it. This new book that I wrote is just part of my atoning, the clearing of my conscience. And the interviewer pressed him a little bit. He said, you really don't think you'll ever be able to clear your conscience totally? Spear shook his head, no. I don't think it'll be possible. And for 35 years, Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings are filled with contritions and and warnings of others to avoid getting into this evil moral sin. He desperately sought after a conscience that was cleansed and it came to no avail. And he died. And as far as we know, he never trusted Christ. Very sad For forgiveness is available to all those who repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have had his conscience clear. But you know what else is sad? As I studied this week, when a blood-bought child of God is being deceived by the enemy, being deceived by the enemy that they are still guilty, that they still need to bear their own shame and disgrace for their sins, or even share partake in the shame of sins that have been done to them. And I've heard this said before many, many times over ministry. I understand the gospel. I accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. I know that I'm forgiven, but you know it. I can't forgive myself. Family, that's a lie from the enemy himself, a tool used of the enemy, a deceptive tool to keep you from a clean conscience. People who say that, they know it mentally of God's grace. They have not experienced it eternally. They know it's theological truth, but it hasn't really transformed their heart yet. When someone isn't able to move beyond their sins and failures, they get stuck in the in spiral of encumbering regret, depression, even self-hatred. They have feelings of deep disappointment and shame, and they believe a lie that they are too sinful, they are too broken, they are too foolish, they are too incompetent to be forgiven, and they beat up on themselves. Listen, there's only one God, and you're not him, okay? And I say this with, with love. It's pride standing in your way. In the way of self-acceptance. You're his creation, his creature, not the creator. You're both a sinner and a saint, beautifully broken at the same time. Uh, 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 we are both beautiful and broken at the same time. Humility is the pathway to freedom. To freedom of, uh, of, of having a conscience that is clear. The freedom that you crave for. It's okay. It's okay to accept God who, you, to accept who God has made you. Accept that you're fallible, imperfect. Sinful, who doesn't know everything. I know that's hard. So let, let me just lovingly say, if, you, if, you're, if you're in that and you've been there before and you're like, I just can't forgive myself, let me just lovingly tell you, get over yourself. <laughs> All right? Embrace the truth that you're not perfect. 
But we have a perfect God, a gracious God, a merciful high God who's done everything that needs to be done. And when you can embrace the truth of who you are, infallible and, and, and broken yet beautiful and who he is, beautiful and, and gracious and kind, you're free to embrace the beauty and the glory and, and of grace that God wants you to have. The love and the forgiveness for your sins. Imperfect self. And you can walk in a clean conscience. Walk in a clean conscience. The blood of Christ cleanses us. Receive that. Extend your hands. Lay it upon the head of Jesus. Like the old hymn says, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. See his sacrifice on the atonement cover and say, I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains white in his blood, most precious till not a sin remains. If you're here this morning, I feel like there are some here this morning that could really hear that word. It's Christ's blood that possesses the power to cleanse us, wash us from our sins, from our shame, from our fears, from any condemnation so that we can have a clear conscience. His death declares the debt has been paid. The infinite atonement has been made. We're relieved. The burden of our guilt and shame is gone. So not only the place of his blood that was shed, not only being on the mercy seat, not only the power of his blood that was shed to clear the conscience, but look at the purpose of his blood shed in that it cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 14, the, the Greek word word, the Greek word serve, letruo, is a word used for Old Testament priest who would work and do the work within the temple area and what what the bible is saying is is this this is how genuine and guiltless good works are supposed to happen out of gratitude and love we serve god and we do good deeds out of the gospel out of the free gift of salvation now that all our sins are forgiven now that we are free from condemnation now that we receive Christ as our final and full sacrifice for our sins. We can worship God. We can serve God radically and freely for we have been forgiven. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said this. To serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man. For this end we were made and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our maker. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we miss that end, we ourselves terrible losers. The service of God is the element in which alone we can fully live. End quote. Christ entered that place that no one was allowed in. This power of his blood cleanses us from all sins and our conscience that we may serve him with gratitude and thanksgiving for what he has already done. You got that? Very important. Number two. The mediation and the inauguration of the blood. Look at verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Mark that. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes place or a will takes effect only a death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay? Verse 15, therefore, Christ's sacrifice enters into the holy place with his blood. He's the mediator better and a new covenant, right? 
and now he's the mediator. See in verse 15? And I just want to mention something about that word mediator. Some of you here possibly think something differently than what the Bible calls a mediator or what Jesus means by being a mediator, okay? So some people, maybe some of you here have had mediators before, right? Maybe in business, um, and you had a mediator, you had someone like step in between two warring parties, can't get along, and you need a mediator to say, okay, you know, you need to do this, and you need to do that, you need to stop that, and you need to, you know, start this, or whatever, whether it's business, sometimes you see that in nations, right, we have a mediator, someone goes to another nation and try to have some sort of treaty, some of you need a mediator in your marriage, right, at times, you need, you need a, a third wheel, someone to speak into our lives, that's not what's meant here. We don't have a problem with our creator. He has a problem with us. It's called sin. It's not like we're negotiating anything with him. We need a mediator because he's holy and we're not. He set the limits. He sets the standards, right? And, and, and I'll tell you here this morning, if, if you don't know Christ, unless you understand you need a mediator because you can't go into the presence of a holy God, he, he's repulsed by sin. He loves you. He loves me. But he hates sin. And unless you understand you need a mediator, you can't be saved. You, you can't be saved. You have to understand that your sin separated you from God. And only on the merit of Christ's sacrifice, his perfect life and his sacrifice, will the guilt and the penalty of our sin be no more. And the power of sin broken from our lives. And, and now we can receive the Holy Spirit. We can uh, uh, be rejoined, reconciled to a holy God. God doesn't dwell in people who have not been forgiven of their sins. Him and sin don't mesh. We need a mediator. You need a mediator. His name is Jesus, okay? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about here. I I want you to see that. And then when that happens, when the mediator brings and reconciles a holy God with a sinful people, verse 15 says, those who are now called are recipients of the promise of eternal life. So those who've been, had a mediator, Jesus, now he says, have been called. And now, once they're called, look what it says. They receive the promise eternal life. Now that calling he's talking about is what we call the effectual calling, where the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, regenerates the hearts. We see sin for what it is. The Holy Spirit liberates our will, which is in bondage. Now liberates our will to choose Christ, to see our sin, to turn from our sin to and receive Christ. That's the effectual call. That's the call of salvation. That's what he's talking about. And that call happens, we receive our internal inheritance. You understand that? What's our internal inheritance? Well, there are a lot of things that we inherit, don't we? We come to faith in Christ, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, an eternal reconciled relationship with God the Father, an eternal hope, an eternal body, an eternal world. But there's one thing that supersedes all that in many ways. What we receive is God himself. It's God himself. The promise, eternal inheritance that believers will be with their Savior and Lord forever and ever and ever. What awaits us, this promise, look what the text tells us. Someone had to die. Blood had to be shed like a will and testament. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 15. 
A death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. So he's saying, listen, there needs to be death in order for the covenant to happen to, to, so that we can receive that forgiveness of sins. Okay, and that's what he's saying. Follow along with me. This, is, this gets a little bit tricky uh, here. But just so you know, look, look, before we get into the whole thing about will and testament, look what he says about the Old Testament people. Do you see that, what he's saying there? Verse 15. The death has occurred, death had to occur, that redeems them from the transgression committed where? Under the first covenant. Let's look at that for a minute. Death has occurred, talking about Christ, forgives sins under the old covenant. That's what he's saying. So if someone asks you, how do people get saved in the old covenant? Tell them Jesus. That's how it happens. Through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. All the Old Testament priests and all the sacrifices and everybody who followed those things, who showed forth their faith and trusting in Christ, were looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. And when the sacrifice of Christ came, his blood shed was for everyone who is in relationship with God. I think it was MacArthur who said, before Christ, and before Christ died, salvation was on credit. Payment was made at Calvary. So if you understand what's going on in this congregation of Jewish people, the, the author's saying, listen, man, even the Old Testament, all that stuff was a foreshadow. Your sins have been forgiven, really, because Christ came. Even our forefathers' sins were forgiven because of Christ. Why are you going back? to old covenant worship practices when the fulfillment of Christ has come and everyone receives forgiveness even under the first covenant, the old covenant. That's what he's saying. And to prove his point, look at verse 15. You'll see the word covenant. Look at verse 16 and 17. And you see what? If you have an ESV, you see the word will. Some of you might have will and testament or testament. In verses 16 to 17, it's mentioned twice. So 15 covenant, 16 to 17, will or testament. And then verse 18, it says covenant again. Let me just explain that, okay? It's the same Greek word. All four times the same Greek word, diatheke. And it's translated in two different ways because the translators wanted to show us that something was going on. There's a wordplay going on. Let me just explain it to you. It's kind of self-explanatory, I think, but let me explain it to you. What he's saying is the covenant that was shed, the covenant that was inaugurated by Jesus Christ by his death and his blood that was shed is something like a will, right? Something like a will. How does a will go into effect when someone dies, right? You don't get anything while the person is alive. You don't want them to die. At least I don't hope you don't. When they die, you receive the inheritance. And what he's saying is under the covenantal promises of God someone had to die just like a will when someone dies you receive the inheritance Christ had to die and when his death and his blood was shed we received the inheritance that's what he's saying and what's so cool about that is Christ not only dies and we receive the inheritance of eternal life but he's also what does the Bible say he inherits all things he rises from the dead most people, right, well, we know when they die, they don't get their stuff back. Christ dies, rises, and gets his entire inheritance of all things belong to him. Look at verse 18. Therefore, 
In this analogy of death and bloodshed and, and covenant and wills and all that must play. Look at verse 13. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's trying to say, listen, this is, this is an ongoing thing. Y'all should know this. Happens in a will. It happens in the old covenant. It happens in a new covenant. Everything is inaugurated with blood. The old covenant and the new covenant. Don't be so surprised, okay? There's a place, a power, a mediation. His name is Jesus. There's inauguration by blood. And finally, look at the principle, verse 19. And the provision. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, it's a plant, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you and in the same way verse 21 he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in in worship okay the author is what the author is doing he's saying you want to talk about old testament remember the old covenant when Moses made it Exodus 24 he slaughtered some animals he took the blood he brought it into the altar and and he sprayed the blood to show that God would provide a, a sacrificial animal, a substitute for covenant breakers. He, he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the book, the covenant book, and the people with the blood signifying that punishment of death for those who don't follow the commands of God. It's, it's a matter of life and death. There's a purification going on. There's, there's cleansing going on. There's like this covenant is sealed in blood. There, there's life and death at its core okay and he's saying look both the old and new covenant are both inaugurated by blood now verse 22 it says this indeed he's wrapping up his argument under the law almost everything is purified with blood and here's the principle without the shedding of blood what there is no forgiveness of sins okay now just stay with me a few more minutes really important If you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you recognize the Bible talks over and over about blood. But if you're not a Christian, you're here listening, or maybe you're new to the Christian faith, you're thinking, you know, y'all are celebrating some weird stuff. You sing about the blood, right? You rejoice about the blood. You, You preach about the blood. Our next song is called... There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath this flood of blood. There's a fountain flowing that never loses its power. We sing songs called Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow of blood. That makes me white as snow. No fount I know. Now we got a fountain of blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Blood, 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 blood. Hope you had breakfast. (laughs) The Old and New Covenant, there's an obsession with blood. But yet that is the Christian hope. The way you get into the Holy of Holies is through the blood. For God cannot just say, hey, I forgive you. Not a big deal. Just come into my presence. That's the whole point of the blood. Justice, 
payment for sins. Genesis chapter 2, the very, very beginning of your Bibles. God took man, put him in the garden, the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you disobey and you rebel and you sin. And you do that, you eat, you will what? Surely die. Surely die. Paul says very clear in chapter 6 of 23, verse 23 of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Our sin, your sin, is a much bigger deal than we think. That's the problem. It's cosmic treason, rebellion against the creator, the king of the universe. When you and I come to terms and realize how grievous and heinous our sin really is, then the death penalty makes more sense. Your sin, my sin, deserves death, and the shedding of blood is the rightful penalty for it. Remember, God said in Leviticus, I have given it to you, the creature's life, which is in the blood, to make atonement for yourself, covering the fence you committed against me, to make atonement. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but I know if you don't have any blood, you're going to die. Right? I mean, without the blood, there's no life. And the Israelites, year after year during this sacrifice, centuries ago, every time they cut the throat of an animal, a lamb, an ox, they would watch the blood drain out. God has given us the blood as an atonement to show the heinous of our sin and the penalty of our sin and that atonement must take place and those who are covered by that atoning sacrifice are set free from the consequences. One life is given to make atonement, the cost of that life in place of another life. That's the point of the blood. If you're going to pay for sins, someone must die as payment. Any just judge who fails to enforce the law for a penalty and extract penalty for the broken laws would be a bad judge, right? God would be unjust. I want you to hear me this morning. To simply forgive sins unless a penalty was obtained. He has showed that for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And Jesus Christ, his blood poured out as our substitute, paying the penalty for our sins, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus then, by shedding his blood, secures salvation. Eternally dying in our place as an eternal sacrifice and never-ending redemption. Therefore, it was necessary to satisfy God. And here's the thing. If you think your sin is no big deal, Christ's death will sound crazy to you. Bloodshed will sound crazy to you. Uh, blood atonement will sound crazy to you. But if you realize by the power and, and, and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, you realize how bad your sin is, my sin is, if you see that, then you will see the glorious, good, and gracious, and holy God who would come down, take on flesh, live a spotless life, and die for our sins. The blood of Christ at the heart of the new covenant. It is through his blood that we are forgiven. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that God declares that to us. Now let me tell you one last thing and we'll close. God could just say this and it be true. And it is. 
But during the death of Jesus, during his crucifixion, God not only tells us about the bloodshed, but he actually showed us with a clear illustration of what the shed blood actually means. So this is what I want to do. I want you just for a moment, close your Bibles and think for a minute. Put yourself for a minute in the temple. You're the, you're the priest. Your father was a priest, and you were a priest 30, 40 years. You sacrifice the animals, you go into the holy place, nobody else is allowed in, and you're doing your ritual day after day, week after week, okay? Today's a different day. For the one who claimed to be God himself, his name is Jesus, in the flesh, who said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through him, that no one can have an intimate relationship unless their sins are forgiven, unless they come through his death, his mediatory priestly role is now being crucified outside the temple like a criminal. It's that day. Hang on, it hung on a tree. You're the priest, you're in the temple, this is going, outside, going on outside the temple. And it's three o'clock in the afternoon and you're minding your own business knowing what was going on. And that day it's three o'clock. It was dark for three hours and now weird, but the sun's finally out. And on that hill of Golgotha, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as the sin of the world is poured out on him? And the father turns his face away as, as the wrath was poured out and the sin was poured out on his son. And then all of a sudden Jesus cries out, it is finished. Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. You're doing your thing in the temple. It was then that Matthew, the Jewish apostle, says this. And Jesus cried out again, a loud voice, yielded up the spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, ripped. The veil that hung four inches thick, 36 feet long, and 30 feet wide was torn from top to bottom, signifying God doing the work. Opening the way into that place that you feared to go in. That you knew don't go past the holy place. Don't you dare enter into the holy holies. You will die if you go there. You knew it firsthand because you were the priest that year that did the day of atonement. And you went in there shaken. Don't kill me, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. You know about the holy of holies. You know about that place and the fear. And God just, before your eyes, the veil is ripped wide open. Entrance. Come into my presence. Could you imagine being that person? The author of Hebrews understood it completely. Brothers, since we have confidence, enter the holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is what? His flesh, his death, access to God, wide open by the atoning dead, the blood shed by Christ. You have now unbridled entrance into communion and intimacy with God. Now, family, that should change everything in your life. Everything in your life should change if you've trusted Christ. How you deal with uncertainty, how you deal with fear, how you deal with disappointment, how you deal with anxiety and worry and struggles and distresses in your life. He was again, let us walk confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. The curtains open that we, may, that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help in time of need. Jesus, your advocate, your high priest, your mediator is always and forever your intercessor giving you assurance of his never-ending love, his never-ending care, his never-ending provision as he reigns and rules the universe. You walk right in. That should change everything. On the night before Jesus went to the cross, he offered the cup of wine to his disciples and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The pouring of wine in the cup symbolized the blood of Christ, which we poured out for all those who will come to him and believe on him. When he shed his blood on the cross, he did away with the old covenant requirements of sacrificing of animals that were insufficient against the holy God, uh, insufficient to cover sins against a holy and infinite God, and yet Christ, the Bible says, his precious blood, a lamb without blemish or defect, paid our sin debt in full. We now have communion and intimacy with God. Our sin is done away with, washed and cleansed. So when we take communion today, and we're going to in a moment, and when you take communion, I hope, for the rest of your life, remember the curtain veil was ripped. The atonement of the day of atonement was fulfilled in Christ. His blood was brought into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, dying on the cross for our sins. Access to God available for, bro- for you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Rejoice in that. That should change everything. So we'll, the band's coming up. We'll confess our sins as we should. Repent, turn from them, but celebrate the veil's been ripped. It's been opened. And celebrate the blood of Jesus who cleanses you from sin. The bread representing his body, his flesh that was broken for you on the cross. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. Today is today. That's what the blood's all about. Trust him today. Ask him, forgive me of my sins, Lord. I trust your work, Lord Jesus, on the cross, dying for my sins cleansing me, washing me, I receive your forgiveness and come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you haven't gotten there, we pray that you will and and just don't come up. It's okay. We love you. We're glad you're here. You could sing. We could talk and we'd like to talk to you. This table is for those who've trusted Christ. Let's partake of the blood remembering the work and the veil has been torn. We now have access, complete forgiveness, intimacy because of what Jesus has done. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the truth of the gospel would drive deep into our souls today. Your joy would be in us. Our our hearts would be grateful for the work of Christ. For he made a way where there could have been no other way. We cannot do it on our own strength. Help us to see his blood shed on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin. The death has occurred by sending your son, Father, to the cross. And now we pray by by the power of your spirit 
we would see the beauty incalculable worth of Christ take of this communion the body and the blood symbolic of what he has accomplished in our place for our sins so that we can have intimacy relationship with you help us to trust you believe on you today we pray in Jesus name amen